0: A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter one, starting with verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God, When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, "'What do you want?' They said, "'Rabbi,' which means teacher, "'where are you staying?' "'Come,' he replied, "'and you will see.'" So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. you may be seated. I love that whenever the kids go to their classes, this middle section is just cleared out, right? <laughs> Um Good to be with you all today. I hope you're doing well. Um, I hope this week has been a good one for you. Uh, I we are we have some texts this morning that require some um, unpacking that we're diving into today so In my church growing up, we used to say, so fasten your seatbelts, because here we go, right? But we're gonna dive a little bit deeper than maybe some waters that we would ordinarily go into today. But uh, first of all, we are in this season of epiphany, as I said before, and this idea of light going into the world. I like thinking of epiphany as the now what of Christmas. So Christmas happened, God has stepped into the world, now what? Well, we realize that that light doesn't stay contained in one place or even with one people. It always goes out. Light is going everywhere. It is God's desire for his glory to fill all of the earth. And one of the things we see in our text today is this reality that the story of Christianity is always Jesus-centered, okay? The story of Je- it's always Jesus-centered and it's always others reaching at the same time. It's Jesus-centered and it's others reaching because the very nature of Christian faith is self-giving. In fact, if, if you were to describe to somebody what is Christianity in a nutshell, I don't think, I think you could do worse than saying Christianity at its heart is self-giving love. It's the reality of self-giving love. Christianity is not a thing if it's not others focused, if it's not outwards-reaching. But here's the problem: I am naturally a selfish person. <laughs> I am. And so are you, I think. (laughs) Uh, Left to our own devices, we tend to think about ourselves first, don't we? We tend to think about our needs. We tend to think about what we want. We usually think about ourselves first, followed by our tribe, (laughs) our people, people who are like us. We think about our needs. And actually, that's been a survival mechanism for humanity for a long time. We protect ourselves And there is, of course, a certain dose of that that's appropriate and healthy. But this is also why our politics tend to quickly become tribal. Because we think about what's familiar to us, the people who are close to us, and we move towards protecting the familiar, that thing that we're so comfortable with, that we know how the world works, this formula of two plus two equals four. I've seen it this way in my life, and I need to protect that because if there's something different, there's something outside of that, then my world is chaos. So we try to protect ourselves. But the story of the Bible has always been about the outsider, the different, In the book of Genesis, God chooses one family, the family of Abraham, to be his chosen people. Sometimes we get a little bit confused because some of the Old Testament, we go, why are they told not to mix with people of other nations? Like, that doesn't make sense. But God chooses a people not out of a sense of nativism or ethnocentrism, rather... It's God chooses one people and a people who have their own great weaknesses. God doesn't choose them because they're the best people of all the people. No, God chooses them in their own weakness to be his ambassadors, to be his messengers, to show the world that God is at work among his people. That's why God chooses Israel. God desires to liberate the world, all people, from sin and from death. Isaiah 49, that first passage that Ellen read this morning, describes who his people are called to be. This is the kind of people that they're called to be. God calls his people, but in this passage, God talks about Israel as if they were one person. So it's interesting, it it talks about this one person and it's describing Israel and who they're supposed to be. So it says, and now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. But then it continues by saying, it's not enough for Israel to just restore themselves. That's never gonna be enough. God is calling them to be a light to the nations. God is calling his people to embody his mission. Christians have historically understood this passage in the Old Testament as a passage that's ultimately about Jesus. It describes the mission of Israel, of who Israel's called to be, but then there's one person, this, we use this word Messiah, there's this one person who comes out of Israel who in and of himself fulfills Israel's mission perfectly and completely, Jesus then is a light to the nations. Jesus embodies who God is. This passage is also significant because it describes how God tends to work. So when I grew up in church, um, this Isaiah 49.5 was read a lot as one of the, I call them purpose passages. So there's like a lot of passages in the Bible where God's talking about a prophet or about the Messiah. And it says, I've chosen you. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Here's some great things that you're going to do. And our tendency was always to individualize these passages, to think, of course, this is just about me. <laughs> this passage is about my great purpose, all the big things God has called me to do. God knew me way back then. He formed me, He me. knew me before he formed me in my mother's womb. And let me say this, my me back up for a minute. Of course, that's true. But when we super individualize these passages in the church, I've noticed we tend to put great pressure on ourselves. We tend to say it's really about me and what I'm going to do. God knew me. He has this giant purpose for me to fulfill in the world. And again, there's some truth to that. God does know you. He loves you specifically. He doesn't just love you in this vague general sense. He loves you specifically. He calls you in your everyday life to embody his mission in the world, and that's beautiful. But only in the past 500 years or so have we begun to read the Bible in this really individualistic sense, where it's all about, I read the Bible, and it's talking specifically about me. This is not ultimately a passage about me. This is a passage about God and what God is doing. One of the phenomenons I've experienced in ministry, because most of the ministry I've been involved in over the years has been with young adults. And I have met many people who are going through what's been described as a quarter life crisis, okay? I guess it's a thing, right? Um, I know so many people, especially young men, who've been told their whole lives by parents or by the culture that they are supposed to do giant things in the world, that they're supposed to do epic, world-shaking things, and then they get really bummed out when most of their life is spent waiting tables or working on databases or selling insurance, right? get really bummed out by that. And so what happens often is we set ourselves up with these kind of passages, and then we have a crisis because we think God works in these big, giant, epic ways, but he doesn't really work in the ordinary ways. And if life is ordinary, then there must be something wrong, is what we tell ourselves. We think God works in big ways, in fame, and in influence, and all of that. But what if this? What if how we embodied Christ in the everyday in the ordinary, was actually way more powerful than any large-scale influence we could ever have. What if that everyday stuff really matters? What if that's the whole (laughs) ballgame? I don't know, maybe. In the ancient world, if you wanted to be a philosopher or someone who contributed something meaningful, the first thing you did is you imitated other people. In fact, that was really your whole life, was to imitate other people who had gone before you. The whole world was driven on imitation. You copied, and then people copied you. You carried on the tradition. So the question of defining yourself, who am I, was defined by I am part of the people and part of the tradition who do this. My identity is found in that tradition that community, that passing on. So philosophers, if you wanna be a philosopher, you copied other philosophers. That's why in the ancient world, if you read those documents, there's a ton of plagiarism going on because they didn't have this modern conception of plagiarism. They're just copying each other and that's just what they're supposed to do, right? Also, carpenters copied other carpenters. <laughs> if you weaved stuff, whatever they weaved back then, you copied other weavers. If you made pottery, you copied other potterers. Okay? You just did this. You passed this down from generation to generation. Then, at the time, right before the, what we call the Age of Enli- excuse me, the Age of Enlightenment, like the 1500s forward, people started to question and to scorn imitation. Okay? People didn't want tradition anymore. They wanted innovation. So people grew skeptical about past traditions. Part of this world was birthed a 100 or so years before that in what we call the Copernican Revolution. So Copernicus was this really handsome devil. There we go. Um, he was this guy who discovered that, and you probably know this already, but that the earth, believe it or not, revolves around the sun, right? Not the other way around. We're not the center of the universe and the sun revolves around us. No, the sun is the center and the earth revolves around the sun. So the belief started to come as as, uh, discoveries like this were made. There was this belief that our tradition told us that everything revolved around us. Other traditions began to fall away. Like we were told the earth was flat. The earth apparently is not flat, right? So we can't trust what we've been told anymore. We can't trust the tradition. There was a guy named Descartes who wrestled with this, and he asked, if imitation and tradition no longer define who I am, if I'm not defined by just copying this next thing and this next thing, how can I know who I am? So Descartes asked this question, like, what makes me who I am? So his conclusion was, well, I'm able to think, and that gives me something unique. So that was his famous phrase, I think, therefore I am, Who's Descartes, okay? Friedrich Nietzsche, we've got a picture of him, too. He was another influential thinker way later, but he rejected the Christian view of God. You've probably heard that he had said, God is dead. And that wasn't necessarily a declaration of atheism on his part, even though it's been taken that way, but it was this idea that because of the age of enlightenment, people no longer need God in society anymore, was his thesis. And so God, the God of Abraham is dead is kind of the way that he described it. But he had this idea of the, the Ubermensch or the Superman, the Uberman. And the Superman is the one, really the goal of life is to be the Superman, is the one who just creates their own thing. They're not dependent on anything outside of their own individuality. They are unique. And so life becomes all about individual fulfillment. Well, here's my challenge when I'm wrestling with this stuff. Is in my upbringing, I experienced a lot more messages that sound like Nietzsche, (laughs) Than sound like Christianity. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I heard a lot that it's all about me and my own individual fulfillment, that it's all about what I can do in the world and the giant things that I can do. And instead, there's something about Christianity that's different. In the midst of all of this shifting that happened in the world, the Christian faith has affirmed you are part of something bigger than yourself. That if life is just about you and you alone, you're missing something. The longing of human existence finds its home in Jesus, the one who always points us outward. God is the agent of healing and restoration, and God is our final hope, not you, not me. Now, you and I have a part to play, but God is the initiator. He's always the initiator. It's about him. This is so incredibly liberating because it means all of your work, all of your relationships, all of your personality, every part of you can be rooted in something deep. It's not just that one thing, it's rooted in something else, in faith, in hope, and in love. And it means that your work and your personality and your talents and all that stuff, that whether it's big and flashy or whether it's ordinary and seemingly boring, that it's influential, that it's important, that it's rooted, that it's part of what God is doing. Ordinary stuff matters as it is rooted in God's love. In our Corinthians text, um, one of the things that I think is so significant is Christians believe that we have an identity in Christ. So our identity is rooted in Christ. Last week, I talked about that baptismal identity. We talked about baptism a little bit, which is not based on our success or even on our behavior. It's based, based in something God has done, okay? The reality is that God has given us this new identity, but here's the thing, we don't always live up to it. So if you're a baptized Christian, you have this new identity, But yet we live in ways all the time that don't live up to our baptismal identity. We aren't who we really are, if that makes sense. We don't live as who we really are in Christ. Our epistle text today is the beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he begins this letter by reminding the Corinthians of who they are. So he basically says to them, you are special stuff. God has created his people and has done this thing in baptism that's powerful. He says to the church in Corinth, they have been sanctified, meaning they've been set apart to be holy, and they're to live out that light, which is described in the Isaiah passage. In fact, all Christians, not just the Christians in Corinth, all Christians have this identity, right? Christians are set apart, But the thing that's so funny, if you read the beginning of Corinthians and you know the rest of the book of of the first letter to the Corinthians, you know that like, it's really funny. Because later, really soon, Paul is about to just call out the Corinthians for how bad they're living. (laughs) He's about to tell them how much they're messing up, right? They're doing all kinds of stuff. Like they're doing stuff that's just wrong. Like all of us would say are wrong. They're sleeping around a lot. They're sleeping around with family members a lot. It's just, awful. They're they're mixing their worship of God with worship of other gods. They're doing this thing at communion where they invite the rich people to come and have the best part of the communion table, and then the poor people come later. They're doing just this awful stuff. (laughs) It would be tempting if I were Paul to just say the Corinthian church is canceled. You guys are canceled. You're, You're done. You're not doing it right. You're not living up to it, but he doesn't. Instead, Paul, at the very beginning, he says, I'm gonna remind you of who you are. He recognizes that their behavior doesn't line up with their identity. How many of you can relate to, okay, we won't raise hands, but I'll raise my hand. Like I can relate to that. My behavior doesn't always line up with my identity. And he shows them that. And I wanna suggest that maybe the best way to correct people in the context of Christian community is to remind them of who they are to remind them of who they are in Christ to remind them that their it's it's almost counterintuitive it's to remind them that their behavior in and of itself is not the end that their identity is really what's important and that that shapes their behavior before Paul gets really harsh with their behavior he affirms their identity they are sanctified And he gives thanks for them and the journey that they're on. In fact, he says, for in every way you've been enriched in him. Even these guys that are doing awful things, he's saying, you've still been enriched. You've still grown in this way. In speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells this church that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. This church that has this awful behavior, he says that to them. Basically, what Paul's saying is, you have everything you need. That's like a Kanye song, right? We have everything we need. Um, anyway, they have everything they need, or is that Chancellor? No, that's Kanye, right? Okay, good. Um, the, uh, <laughs> where was I going with that? I don't remember. But they have everything they need. And the reason for this is the Corinthian church was looking for ecstatic experiences. They were looking for the gifts that were big and were exciting and all these kind of things. And he's saying, you don't need all that stuff. You have everything you need right here. That's it. They don't need a newfangled gift, an ecstatic experience. They have it all. So it means even when life is boring or hard, their identity is secure and they don't need to pursue anything else because they have everything that they need. I think we need to hear this today. Your identity as part of God's family is not dependent on your behavior, your success, or your failure. It's not. The Corinthians, and this is why, going back to the Isaiah 49 thing, if we make it all about us and how well we do and how much we're fulfilling this big purpose that God has for us that has these big tangible results, we put so much pressure on ourselves. but it's about God's work, it's not about our work. The Corinthians weren't bearing the fruit they needed to bear, but God will always be faithful to them. This is what we tell our kids over and over again, those of you who have Kids. You're part of this family, right? We will never reject you because of what you've done. You're never gonna not be part of this family. You're always part of this family. I tell Lucy, you're a sharp. Like if she's acting kind of a wet knucklehead kind of way, it's like, it's like, you're a sharp. This is what sharps do. We're gonna do this differently, right? But it's reminding them of who they are. Now, kids can choose to leave the family. They can choose behavior where we have to set boundaries that are necessary. Sometimes there's even distance that's necessary, but their identity is secure. As adoptive parents, we've tried to work extra hard to remind Lucy she is forever ours. She's forever part of our family. Right now, she's convinced she will never move out of the house. She will never go to college and that I will always read to her until she falls asleep. No matter what, she's envisioned this future where she's a grown adult, and I'm reading to her until she falls asleep every night. There will be a time where we need to lovingly encourage her to explore her independence. And she will want to, right? But right now when she says she just wants to live with us forever, we simply say you are welcome with us forever and we will always be your parents, right? I'm not sure if any of you have seen the Netflix show, The Crown. Anybody seen this, right? The royal family is just this interesting system in England. It's just a quirky system because you're always part of the royal family no matter what you do, right? So there's this discontinuity that happens where certain people are part of the royal family, but they have to be given these other titles and like sent to other places. But they're always, they have all this bad behavior, but they're still part of the royal family. They just have to deal with it. They don't get to cancel their kids or their family members. They don't get to cut them off. And it's really interesting watching that show in light of the headlines that are going on right now (laughs) as Harry and Meghan are trying to decide how are we still part of the family but not part of the family, right? Paul is about to point out to the Corinthians how unchristian their behavior is, how not like the family their behavior is, but that's not who they are. When sin manifests itself in the life of the Christian, we should rightly call that out, but that's not who we are. It's something foreign to our true identity. We are the people who've been set free from sin and death. And God will always be faithful to us. So hear that today. No matter how screwed up you think you are, God is faithful. Because it's ultimately about him and about us orienting our lives towards the reality of his lordship and his love. In John 1, this gospel text that we read, John the Baptist has been captured by the reality that the story's not about him. In fact, if you look in the Bible and you're looking for somebody that just knows it's not about him, it's John. He believes he's part of something, but he's always deferring to Jesus. In fact, John's whole life is going, look at that guy, look at that guy, look at Jesus. Here in our gospel passage, John twice declares that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Almost all of the earliest image of John, John the Baptist in art, people who painted and put together iconography, they almost always have him pointing to a lamb in the passages. So if you ever see John, he's usually got a lamb nearby or or somewhere. In fact, John the Baptist is almost always either in the presence of a lamb pointing to Jesus or pointing to the lamb. It's one of those things that's present in those paintings because it's the defining characteristic of John's life, pointing to Jesus. That should be the defining characteristic of our lives, So that we're always pointing to him. But why a lamb? Okay, here's the part I need you to buckle your seatbelts for because we've got to go a little bit deep in this, but I think it's important, so stay with me. When the children of Israel were set free from slavery in Egypt... You know, the movie, The Ten Commandments, The Prince of Egypt, you know, that whole thing when it happened. God sent all these plagues on Egypt, all right? And um, sent these plagues on the Egyptians in order to convince them to set his people free. His people were in slavery. He sent these plagues to convince the Egyptians to set them free. The Egyptians were not living in harmony with God's reality, Okay, God's desire was to liberate and to heal and love the world. So the plagues, we could see them as a natural result of the behavior of the Egyptians because they're living out of whack with that, out of line with that. The last plague was the hardest. Egypt refused over and over again to let God's people go. So the text says that the angel of death went through all of Egypt and the firstborn son of every household died. But for Israel, God had them do this interesting thing. When the angel of death went through, God had them put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts of their home so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. That's where we hear Passover, right? That's where that comes from. The angel of death passed over their homes. So they're identified. Their identity is the blood of the lamb. When the angel of death sees it, they see, no, this household is defined and is identified by the blood of the lamb. This became a marker for Israel. They knew throughout their history, way after they were set free, generation and generation, were the people who were saved by the blood of the lamb. That was their language. And once once they were set free and they found themselves on the journey in the desert, God's presence, God's spirit was with them. And the text tells us that it was with them in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke by day. So what happened is the children of Israel continued this tradition. They um, slaughtered the lambs And the lamb's blood meant liberation. That was part of the celebration of Passover. It was a proclamation of God's faithfulness in a world of death. So the idea is we live in a world where death is present all over, sin and death. And yet in the midst of that, we've been marked. We have a mark by the blood of the lamb and that means liberation. Our God will always be faithful and he will always set us free. It was also believed that when the lamb was slaughtered in the temple, it paved the way for God's spirit to dwell with his people. So just like the lamb was um, on the doorpost, the lamb's blood was on the doorpost and they were set free and then God's spirit was with them in the desert, in the wilderness, every time they slaughtered the lamb, they believed then that God's presence would come and dwell with them in the temple. Well, in Jesus, John the Baptist recognizes God's doing something new. He's taking this old story that has this pattern of uh, redemption and liberation and then God's spirit dwelling and he's doing it in a bigger way now. There's a new lamb of God who brings liberation. And this time that liberation is not just from slavery in Egypt, but it's from the greatest enemy of all, death itself. In fact, if we fast forward to the end of John's gospel, the death of Jesus takes place on the afternoon when the Passover lambs were being killed in the temple. Jesus becomes that Passover lamb. John knows this about Jesus, and he says he knows it about him because of his baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes down and rests on him. And this means that Jesus is the one who won't just baptize with water like John does, but will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we see this, the death of the lamb and then we see the spirit coming down. In fact, after Jesus's death and resurrection, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus gives his followers his spirit, John 20 and 21. John describes all of this in this profound, mysterious way. God is doing it again. Again. He liberated us before from slavery in Egypt. That's been our story forever. And now God is about to liberate us from sin and death itself. In the midst of all of this, John the Baptist had some disciples too. And he's hanging out with his disciples, the people who are following him. And Jesus walks by and John says it again, that guy is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think about John the Baptist and He's not an insecure guy, it seems like. He's not clutching on to his disciples. He's not afraid that, well, Jesus is better than me, so maybe I'm gonna lose these guys, but I should really try to hold on to them. No, he's the opposite. He's saying, go to him. (laughs) He's the one who has eternal life. He's the one whose God's spirit dwells in a unique way. God's spirit rests on him. And on John's word, the two disciples follow him. And Jesus asks them, what are you looking for? And they respond in a weird way, where are you staying? So Jesus says, what are you looking for? And he says, they say, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. They went with him, they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him, the text says that day. This is an odd interaction, but I wanna suggest two things here. In John's gospel, Jesus often uses the language of staying or remaining, Discipleship is not about moments or events. There are moments and there are events in following Jesus, but discipleship is about a life of remaining in Christ. Remaining sounds way more boring than arriving or transforming or even making an impact. Remaining, what is that? The Titans play a big game today. And I have to admit that I am a bandwagon Titans fan. I am not a Titans fan. I root for the Dallas Cowboys. But um, we live in Nashville. We've lived really close to the stadium. We live really close to the stadium. And I want to see our city do well. So I'm a total bandwagon, like no apologies. I'm on the Titans, tighten up bandwagon right now. But I admire most my friends who are fans of teams that are never good. (laughs) I have a good friend of mine who's a Buffalo Bills fan. And, and they had a good year this year, but they've had a really rough time. And that city's had a really rough time. And he, they are just diehard. They're just rooting for the Buffalo Bills all the time. And I wanna say these people are remainers, right? They don't ditch their team. They say, we're with them, we're in this thing. And don't get me wrong, life in Christ is good, it's sweet. I'm not saying that life in Christ is like being a fan of a bad team, right? But you can't be a bandwagon fan of Christianity. I mean, I guess you can, but it's the whole different definition. Christianity and discipleship is all about remaining and staying, sticking it through. And then the disciples, so we have this idea of remaining, and then the disciples are invited to come and see. Come and see is a huge part of John's gospel. There are signs all over the place that Jesus is doing something different than the ordinary teacher. And there's all these signs of who he is all over the place. So we are a people who are invited to come and see this thing that has happened. Come and see, come and experience him. And we're invited to simply invite others to come and see. We've encouraged you a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week. (laughs) I encouraged you over the next few months to invite friends to church been encouraging us in this uh, this goal. And we, we talk about this big goal that we have. It's this kind of audacious goal that we would love by the time Easter rolls around, we'd love for our church to be able to consider maybe we have two Easter Sunday morning services. Because maybe the two different times on Easter Sunday might actually be able to reach more people. I told you before that Right now, in the context of our community, if we said we're gonna have two services, that would feel really odd. It would feel like we're splitting our family in half, right? But, uh, but what if, as we're inviting friends over the next few weeks, as Lent starts up soon and we're inviting friends to Easter, that that might actually be something that we could consider, right? And all I've, and I've asked you a couple things. I've asked you to find one family in your life who you know is not involved in a church and to do what we call a strong invite, a face-to-face hey, what are you guys doing for church? Would you ever wanna come join me at sacrament on this particular day? And then also to find five other families or people in your life for what we call a soft invite, maybe a text message or a Facebook message or whatever. Um, and I wanna be clear about what we're challenging you to do. <clears throat> we're not challenging you to sell our church. I'm not asking you to convince anybody why they should go to church. Don't put together a PowerPoint presentation and then say, hey, here's 10 reasons why church is better for you. Like, no, don't do that stuff. All we are ever invited to do when we invite people into Christian community is to invite people to come and see. That's it, simple. Come and see the Eucharist. Come and hear the word of God, come and see. When the disciples follow him, they receive a completely new identity. Andrew is this guy who's mentioned here who also gets this whole thing about pointing away from ourselves to Christ. He immediately, when he becomes a disciple, he immediately goes and finds his brother, Simon. And he brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, Jesus said to him, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter which actually means rock, right? Simon Peter experiences an actual new identity. Peter goes from Simon to rock. Peter traded everything for a new identity, and that's what the life of a disciple involves. It means trading in the life of seeking success, approval, and performance at all costs. Now that doesn't mean there's something wrong when we experience success or approval performance. That's beautiful. We thank God for that. We celebrate that with each other when that happens. It's wonderful, and God is at work, but that can't be our final goal. That can't be the thing that we seek. God uses these things, but if they're our final pursuit, they're going to prove hollow. It means trading in a life of seeking all that stuff for a life of remaining. My prayer for us is that we would be a people who are secure only in the faithfulness of God, that our entire lives would be lived in view of his faithfulness to his people. My reminder to us today is remember you have a new identity. Remember who you are. I encourage you that there's practices that we can put in our lives daily that are reminders of that identity that we have in Christ whether it's scripture reading or times of prayer or the consistent ritual of Christian community and gathering together that constantly remind us you're called to something different. The world's gonna tell you every single day that you're defined by something else. It's gonna tell you once you're this successful, once you make this much money, once this many people like you, then that's gonna be valuable. But no, at the end of the day, we have a different and better identity. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's all stand together.